is for those who have been what? Called. That's right. This text has universal application for and is directed to every single member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly whom the Apostle Paul is writing to in this letter, right? Members of Christ's church, capital C, the church universal. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And though this specific letter is addressed to the saints at Ephesus, in the supreme wisdom and wondrous will of our Lord, these words have been just as significant, just as meaningful for all saints throughout church history. And they're just as significant, just as meaningful for each and every believer living today. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you have been washed, cleansed, purified, made to be spotless in the sight of an infinitely holy God by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been regenerated, if you have been restored, redeemed, declared righteous and reconciled to your creator through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, granted everlasting life by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, then my brothers and sisters, you are a saint. You are a saint. And the almighty God of the heavens and the earth has a word for you today. And regardless of your age, regardless of your sex, regardless of your nationality, your personality type, if you are truly saved, this text is for you this morning. This text is for you. It's for the saints, the holy ones, the beloved, the faithful, the chosen, the elect of God, all believers, all children of God who were predestined to salvation from before time began, from before the very foundations of the earth even, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul used the term saint in, in his introduction to this letter. He uses it again in our verse 12. He uses the same word some 40 times in his letters, never referring to an individual person elevated above the rest, by the way. No. That's a perversion and a distortion of the title used by the Catholic Church. And in their practice of canonizing people, they deem worthy of some special honor, but that's by no means justified in Scripture. Paul uses this term to identify anybody, anybody who has been chosen by God, called by God, set apart for holiness. Hagias is the word. Holy ones, which refers to all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I got to ask right from the get-go here. Is this descriptive of your position? Are you one of the saints? Have you been set apart for holiness? If so, then you're just the audience Paul is writing to here, as Paul is talking to the called men and women of God, Christians. This section is for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. This is not for the world. And if you don't know you're a Christian, I would love to talk with you after the service here, because you can know. You can be sure. In fact, the first three, letters, uh, first three chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians are very helpful in explaining the foundational characteristics of a believer. First, through doctrinal instructions in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here's what it means to be called, he says. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what's been done for you through Christ. And turn back a page uh, to chapter 1, verse 3. He says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That we should be blameless before him. There it is again. We are set apart for holiness. Hagios. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved we are called to salvation by his sovereign will alone according to his sovereign purpose alone for his mere good pleasure alone and we are called by his grace alone and we are called for his glory alone in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's what we have to be absolutely certain of this morning before we go on. Because, again, Paul has a target audience in mind here. This, is, this has universal application. Not for everyone in the world, but for everyone in the church. For the called of God. Those who recognize, along with Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, that they were dead. They were dead in their transgressions and sins in which they formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, Paul said, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's foundational. That's something I can build upon, right? That's not like the sinking sands of this culture, the, the shifting sands of this society. That's a solid rock I can build my spiritual house upon. That's the first three letters, first three chapters of Ephesians. Then we get into practical application in the last three chapters here, okay? First three chapters, here's the foundation of your faith. Chapters one through three, here's what's been done for you in Christ. Chapters four through six, here's what you are to do in light of what's been done for you through Christ and in Christ. And don't forget, Paul is writing this particular letter to the church from a Roman jail cell, likely right next to Dr. Luke. Uh, as he says right in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner, prisoner for the Lord. With all the time in his, on his hands, much more importantly, through the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he pens this letter in chains. Okay? And as one preacher said, he gloried in these chains more than a king glories in his crown. crown. He gloried in his chains. He was grateful to be in chains. He was thankful to be a prisoner for the Lord. And the purpose of this letter was not to ask for deliverance or for divine protection. He wasn't asking them to send someone to plead his case or spring him out of there. Again, the purpose of this letter was to declare God's will and plan for his church, for his people. Therefore, again, he writes in verse 1, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. If you have been called, if you've been chosen by God for salvation before the very foundation of the world, if you've been predestined to become one of his sons or his daughters through his efficacious grace alone, 
then walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner. Again, last week we examined the faithful man or woman's uh, walk with God. Last week it was walk wisely. Go about your remaining days on this earth in the way of wisdom. Live out the remainder of your brief time on this earth in such a way that is reflective of the new life you've been graciously given by your creator. In other words, since you now belong to him, since you are now one of his, his honor is now at stake. Not just yours here. His reputation is on the line. When people see you, they will see the Lord Jesus Christ. When people see you, they will see their creator. Therefore, how you live your life on this earth, how you live your life in the church matters. So Paul is urging, he's pleading with these saints at Ephesus and, and all believers here this morning even, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Well, how do we do that, Paul? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. First, he says, with humility. Walk in humility. And how could we be anything but humble? We didn't earn our position of justification before a holy God. We didn't manufacture our calling or give God any reason at all to choose us. We didn't contribute any more to our second birth than we did to our first birth. And how much did we contribute to our first birth? None. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Same with our being born again. Nada. Except, of course, that which necessitated being our, our needing to be reborn or regenerated or redeemed, right? Again, he told us back in chapter 2 who we were before God had to sovereignly intervene. He said, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead men. We were dead women. Spiritually dead. Not a little bit of life, not a glimmer of life. Not a glimmer of light, not a spark of divinity, as some have said. Not a tiny little fraction of a cell which somehow gave us the ability to choose to do what, the, what is good. No, no. We were children of wrath. We, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking corpses. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord to place on his son the penalty that we so rightly deserved. It was the will of the Lord to save us and to breathe into us the breath of life and awaken our mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells within us. Knowing that, how could we possibly be walking any other way than humility? I love what Charles Spurgeon said, and I've quoted this for about 100 times. It's probably 101st. I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> I believe the doctrine of election. Because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked on me with special love. That's humility. That's humility. There are some so-called Christians out there who look down upon others who are in the pit and don't seem to 
because they don't think they measure up to this now new sanctified position, this position of holiness that they find themselves in. They look down on other people. What short memories they have. How quickly they forget that they were in that same pit needing to be rescued themselves. And, and could only be rescued by the merciful hand of God, which graciously was extended down to yank them out of that. Well, Paul says, walk in humility, uh, a lowliness. Have a humble opinion of yourself. John, John Bunyan wrote this. He said, uh, he that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. He that is down needs fear no fall. Again, <clears throat> walk in humility, Paul says, and gentleness. Walk with gentleness or meekness. Now, meekness doesn't mean weakness. It means, <clears throat> excuse me, a power that is under control, okay? Like a tamed beast, as one who has power but exercises restraint. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson observed how sometimes horse jockeys after the race will say, oh, yeah, this horse was very meek. Uh, she was very meek, this horse. Now, have you ever seen a horse jockey? They're about this tall. <laughs> All right? They're about this big. What do you think that they mean when they call that horse meek? You think that they're saying this thousand-pound beast who could buck them into the next county is weak? Is that what you're thinking? No, they're saying she's extremely powerful. But it's a power that's under control, so I'm able to ride her. I'm able to mount her. That's meekness. That's meekness. Our Lord said to his captors, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I can destroy you all with my word like that. Everybody I can destroy. And yet, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. That's meekness. Okay, that's what Paul is referring to here in this letter. Be imitators of Christ. Be meek. Be meek with one another. We have the power to destroy each other. If not with the sword, then certainly with the tongue, right? But that would not be walking in a manner worthy of our calling to be holy as he is holy, would it? Well, Paul also says we're to walk in patience, verse 2. Bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so he calls for unity here, for patience. He's saying don't fight fire with fire. Don't retaliate against one another in the church, okay? Restrain yourselves from the, pri the prideful bantering and, and quarrels which sow seeds of division. Be long-suffering with one another, he says, as the one who calls has been long-suffering with us. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You know, the Christian church can be a very hurtful place, very hurtful place. I spent the majority of my life in the secular realm, on construction sites and sales in corporate America, and I'll tell you this. Never have I witnessed nor experienced so much pain and hurt and conflict as I do in the church, especially in leadership. People can be so nasty to each other in the church, so many joyful and wonderful things about the church, yet I don't know what it is, but it seems like the moment that folks walk through those doors, they feel like they've been given license to just say whatever they want to say whatever they feel like saying, even if they would never say it to anyone outside of this place. But Paul says, no, no, no. That's not in line with your calling. There should be humility 
There should be gentleness. There should be long-suffering, patience. Bearing with one another in love. In love. We of all people should have unity. Not division, but true unity, unlike anything experienced in the whole world. Why? Well, look at verse 4. And watch now as he gives a mini summary of the first three chapters. Here's our foundation. Here's our example here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What's he saying here? There's one body. Uh, Who's the body? The church. That's right, the church. Remember, he's likely with Dr. Luke here, who would have been very familiar with the body. And (coughs) here Paul uses the analogy of the body to describe the collective people of God, all those who are his, all those who belong to him are a part of his body. Again, everyone who is under the lordship or headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, again, all true believers. Christ is the head. We are the body. The body carries out the instructions of the head. The head tells the body where to go. We all know how much life a body has without a head, right? None. But not so with us. New life has been given to us, remember? We were, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ, right? We are now alive, and we are unified. We are united as a body. We are united together under one head, who is Christ. There is one body, and what unites us? The one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. We've said it before, like an ice climbing team that's linked together as they scale the dangerous mountains of the earth. There's an invisible rope that goes through all believers in the church. We are all connected if we are all in Christ. And again, what is that rope or who is that rope? That's right, the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. He holds us all together. He, he unifies us. We are the body all joined together. Very important. We are the body. And we have a united hope, which is eternal life together in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom he references in verse 5. There's one body, the church. Well, even Christ said, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what he has done since he ascended back up to the right hand of the Father on high in bodily form. Ever since Pentecost all the way up to today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's been building his church with the called and redeemed children of God, with the saints. One spirit. Of course there's one spirit. And one hope. Which is the hope of eternal life through him and with him. We are a hope-filled people, are we not? Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We have a hope inside of us. And there is only one Lord. Here, Here we see a reference to God the Son, the Lord. There is only one Lord, and he is head of the church. Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Excuse me. And those who believe are indwelled with, baptized with the promised Holy Spirit of God, united with others who are of the one faith. The only way for true unity is through true faith. We were saved through one faith, which is a gift from God. Okay? One baptism. Now, commentators have gone back and forth on this. Is this a reference to water baptism, or is it about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I lean towards the latter. 
It's a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is true of all genuine believers. We believe and teach that believers should be obedient in receiving water baptism, but we know that all, not all true believers have been baptized with water. Someone once said, why even the great Baptist preacher John Bunyan got his Christian to the celestial city without once being baptized. <laughs> but that was good. I believe it's uh, <coughs> the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then we see one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in, and in all. Now look at that. Right there in, in verses 4 through 6, we see all members of the Godhead displayed. One Spirit, that's God the Holy Spirit. One Lord, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one God, that's God the Father. This is our foundation. This is what separates us uh, this is what separates true believers, the true church, the true body, from all the other counterfeits in the world. It's right here. One spirit. If you don't have the spirit of God dwelling within you, you are not saved. You are not part of the body of Christ. You are your own body, and you will perish. You will die in your sins because you have not yet been washed and regenerated by him. You, ultimately, you have no head. Okay? One Lord. Jesus Christ is not just Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't make him Lord at some point in our walk. He is Lord. And verse 4 says one God. Who is this God? A God over some? No, a God over all. This is a, a foundational and essential doctrine here. One God, yet with a qualifier. He is God and Father. He is a father. He is the father of Christ. He is a father of all those whom he has called. And if you don't believe that he is father, then you don't really believe in who he says he is. And while he still rules over you, you are not his child. Okay? This is why I cringe every time I hear folks say that Muslim and the Christian have the same God. That Allah is the same God as the God of the scriptures. That's not true. That's not true. They don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We worship the one true God, God the Father. They worship their father, the devil. They don't have the rope of the Holy Spirit going through their carabiners because they don't believe in God the Son nor the triune nature of the one true God. And one day, unless they repent and believe, they will fall. They will tumble over the cliff to their own destruction where they will be separated from his love for all of eternity in hell along with every other unbeliever throughout the history of the world. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling as one united body. Just like God is united, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the foundation of the church. It's foundational to genuine saving faith. We have to discuss the foundation before we can move on to his will for our lives on this earth and our lives in the church. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, good, because we're going to slow it down a bit now. We're going to slow it on down. But it all had to be said. We had to set the foundation. Now we can begin to build on that foundation as we begin to come into the specific application of our faith, okay? And it all starts right here in verse 7. Look in your Bibles. Paul writes... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So just as he gets done talking about unity within the body, uh, the unity which we all enjoy through that invisible rope of the Holy Spirit who ties us all together, just as he gets done talking about the unity within the church, he now shifts to diversity within the body. Okay, this is important. As Paul will go on to say in verse 16, we are all individual parts, individual members of the body. Grace was given to each one of us. We are each individual members of the body. When the Lord Jesus Christ was triumphantly resurrected from the dead and ascended in bodily form back to the right hand of the Father in glory, he sent his spirit to indwell his body, to indwell his church, to indwell each one of his people. So... While the head of the church reigns from on high, his body and its many members, by the strength of his spirit, are actively working together to accomplish his will on the earth. Okay, Paul uses this analogy of the individual members of the body in a number of places. Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look what he tells the church in Corinth. You can go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Please do turn there, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start in verse 12. <clears throat> For just as the body is one and has many members, <clears throat> and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We just talked about that, right? The one body, one spirit, one baptism of the spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all are united together. All are tied together. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For also the body is not one member, but many. Then it gets specific with the individual members here. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason that it's any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason that it is any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole, uh, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has appointed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. You see what he's saying here? One body, many members, united together by the Spirit. But there's diversity in both ability and function here. We all have the Spirit of God uniting us together, but we all operate in different ways. We all bring something different and unique to the functionality of the body. Okay, he elaborates on this in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, how much more is it that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary? And those members of the body, which we think are less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no such need. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This is so countercultural in the church today. Yet, this is God's will for his body. Both the unified body 
and its individual members. You know, anytime I get any type of injury, <coughs> I always think of Paul saying here that the, uh, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I remember back uh, some years ago in my early 20s, I was down in Florida with some friends and they had this huge bouncy castle in their backyard. And of course, everyone knows that the only way to increase the joy of the bouncy castle experience is to put water and soap on it. Okay? Well, uh, this particular bouncy castle had stairs and a slide and the whole, whole deal. It was one of those big ones. And I remember following my friend up these stairs, which of course fold over and collapse at even the smallest amount of weight. And, and he slips and I slip. We all tumble down. We have a real good laugh, right? Well, the laughter is short-lived when I look down and I notice my right pinky toe has swollen up to the size of its next-door neighbor. The ring toe, I guess you'd call it. Even though I don't wear toe rings. Don't get it twisted. It's swollen, and this toe is swelling up real good, right? But it's not broken or anything. So, so I just kind of shake it off and go right back up. Well, later that night, I realized just how big a deal this actually was. And for the next, I don't know, three or four weeks, I'm limping around everywhere I went because of this one pinky toe. It's excruciating to walk upon. I, I even had to cut the tops off the, some of my shoes so it didn't come into contact with my pinky toe. I was in so much pain here. And you know what else? I'm walking differently to compensate here, so I don't have to put weight on it, which is causing my calves to get sore. It's causing my knees to get strained and my hips to go out of line. Out of, uh, they were all out of whack. I was a chiropractor's dream. <laughs> it was all because of this one pinky toe. All that to say, a grown man has no business on a bouncy castle. We must avoid these temptations at all costs. <coughs> Fight these temptations at all costs. Moving on, <laughs> the next, the point is, even the smallest, <laughs> Eric, I love you, brother, uh, even the smallest injuries to the seemingly most insignificant members of our physical bodies can have a major impact on our lives. In the same way, the entire body of Christ, each individual spirit and dwelled member, does, if we don't work together, the whole body is impaired. It, the whole body's impacted here. The, the whole rest of the body suffers. There can be division within the body, which dishonors the head. That's why Paul says if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. All the, all the members suffer with it. Now, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are of Christ's body, individually members of it. We want to be a body of believers individual members functioning properly so that the rest of the body doesn't have to compensate for any members who aren't operating as they ought. That makes sense? That's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he's just about to tell us back in Ephesians 4 the biblical model for how a healthy body is to operate. I want you to listen closely now. We believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are all united. We're all roped together. We're all one body but we have all been given specific individual roles, abilities, or gifts to contribute to the proper functioning of the body. Okay? Christ has given us each individual gifts and abilities if we are his, and they are serving gifts. They're not gifts for our own edification. They're not gifts for our own benefit. Okay? That's very important. Not for personal edification. 
but gifts which will serve the rest of his body. It says in verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable, or he gives gifts to all his people according to his measure. Christ himself appropriates specific spiritual gifts in specific amounts to specific saints, and they vary from person to person, okay? John MacArthur calls us spiritual snowflakes, and that was back in 1978 before the term snowflake had such negative connotations. <laughs> but what he meant is that we're all unique. <clears throat> we're all diverse. We're all special in the Lord's eyes. There's no such thing as an identical twin, not in the physical nor the spiritual. He gave us gifts to uniquely display and serve his body. Okay? Some have gifts of utterance, as we will see, speaking gifts. Some are gifts of service, as we'll see. Again, there are lists, lists of gifts found in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, and of course, this reference in Ephesians chapter 4. Some of these gifts on these lists were temporary gifts, only used for a certain place at a certain time for a specific purpose, and some of these gifts are ongoing, okay? There are about 20 gifts listed. I believe some of these gifts can overlap with each other. But each believer has at least one gift. Okay? They might also have a combination of gifts. The gifts may change over time. The key is that the believer knows and uses the gifts that they've been given. Okay? You say, well, how do I know what gifts I've been given? How do I know how the Lord wants to use me? Well, some people take surveys. It's not really something I'd recommend. Who knows how well those things work? Plus, you can pretty much make those things say anything you want them to say. Uh, so don't waste your time with those surveys, is what I would tell you. Here's the first bit of practical application, okay? More to come next week, Lord willing. Do you want to know how the Lord has gifted you? Be a part of the body. Be a part of the body. Do you want to know what your unique gifting is? Be around the other members of the body. Be a part of the local church, which is a representation of the larger church, all true born-again believers. Be a part of the body and serve the body. Your giftedness will come out when the body begins to rely on you as one of its members, okay? Get involved. Participate. Cooperate. Circulate. Don't just come in on Sunday mornings for an hour a week and expect the rest of the body to look at you and say, oh, I'm sensing the gift of encouragement here. That's just not how it works. But that's what's been done in the American church for years. Folks come in with their Starbucks, they sing a few songs, they sit and listen to a 45-minute sermon, then they sneak out before they have to talk to anybody. That's the opposite of what Paul's saying here. That's the opposite of God's will for the rest of your life on this earth. I mean, if that kind of thing is important to you. Get involved. And many of you are. Praise the Lord. You know, I've sat in on many an elder meeting, both here and at Littleton, and I've often heard, well, so-and-so is leaving. Uh, this family is leaving. They just don't feel connected. Or, you know, it's hard to break into a church like this. I just couldn't get plugged in, so we're leaving. Well, that's nobody's fault but the, the folks who are leaving. Because there are plenty, and I mean plenty of ways to get connected to a local body. We have youth ministries, men's ministries, women's ministry, the nursery ministry, the senior ministry, a multitude of ministries in between. We have missions, preaching and teaching ministries, security, music, AV, visitation ministries, visit the sick, visit widows. 
the counseling ministries. Get trained to become a biblical counselor or just come in and get some free counseling. That's one of the things I love most about the church. You get free counseling here. Just be involved with the body is what I'm saying. Be involved. If, if you are a true, genuine, born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has gifted you in such a way that will serve the body and bring glory and honor to his name. And you know what? You might not necessarily go right into the place where the, the Lord would have you. You may have to start doing something outside of your gifting, like helping with the refreshments or setting up the Lord's Supper table or, or working in Bible beginners, you know, if you can pass a background check. But once you're faithfully serving around the other members of this body and they begin to see how you operate, it won't be long before someone says, you know, you have a really strong faith. Or it seems like you have a heart for evangelism or administration or whatever it ends up being. And then the body, hopefully the elders, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, will place you in a position of not only greatest need, but of greatest benefit to the other members of the body. That's how gifting is identified. Not through some easily manipulated survey. Okay? All I'm saying is you have been given a gift if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. At least one. But you'll never know what that gift is, and you'll never know how God wants to use you if your involvement with the rest of the body consists of three to four hours per month. It will never happen. And you will live out your life in contradiction to God's will. Because even worse than not knowing how Christ has gifted you is to know and not use the gifts that you've been given. That's just blatant disobedience. And folks will be held accountable at the judgment for, for the gift that they did not use. Uh, I believe it's the responsibility of every believer, as well as the responsibility of the elders in the body as a whole, to identify and utilize your giftedness. And we'll see the significance of this truth in the remainder of our time together next week. But first, very quickly, <clears throat> in verses 8 through 10, Paul then explains how Christ alone has the authority to give these gifts to the men and women who belong to him. Okay, verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive of hosts. Let's see, a captive, a ho he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now we could easily spend all of January and February on these verses here, but I'm going to do a very brief overview because it's not the main point. There are many different views on this passage, particularly, particularly verse 9. And only a couple that really make sense, though. We do know that Paul is referencing Psalm 68 here. Okay? This is a psalm of triumph. A psalm which tells of the God's victory over the enemies of Israel and his ascending to the throne atop the holy hill to receive gifts and tributes from his subject. And now that God is victorious, he alone has the right to distribute the spoils of war, the gifts, back to whomever he will, just like an earthly king would. Paul's usage of this psalm puts Christ in that position of victory. I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about Jesus Christ hanging on that tree. As he hung on that cross, his body was beaten. His skin was scourged. There was blood dripping from his thorn-pierced brow as he hung there. And he was being derided, having been mocked and spit upon and blasphemed. He's looking down on the ones he, whom he came to save, who are walking the very earth that he spoke into existence by the, words of, the word of his power. And he's now hearing their words as, he, as they're reviling him, saying, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The world had thrown all it had at him, right? They had inflicted the maximum amount of earthly pain and torture that they could on him, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, and physically speaking, right? Finally, ending with his hanging on this Roman cross, the worst form of execution the world had ever known. To humanity, it looked like this so-called king had been conquered and defeated. But what happened three days later? Well, he came out of that tomb, a risen, living, triumphant savior, having defeated death, having defeated sin, having defeated Satan. The grave could not hold him. And we read in Acts where he ascended. He ascended where? To the right hand of the Father. He had given himself for his people. The king had sacrificed himself for his subjects. The perfect sacrifice was made as the infinitely holy and righteous God of the heavens and the earth. His father then accepted that sacrifice and vindicated him by raising him from the dead. The price was paid. The victory was won on the cross. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And he was raised and he ascended victoriously and was given by God the Father, who is over all and through all and in all, the authority to distribute the spoils of his victory. The the grace gifts given to those who are his, the redeemed, the called men and women of God. And that's exactly what he did. The triumphant resurrected Lord gives gifts to those who are his. To you, if you are in Christ, and it cost him his life. And again, each one of you has at least one gift. You have at least one gift if you belong to him. And likely a combination of gifts to use for the service of the body. Most everybody within orthodoxy agrees with this interpretation. Okay? It's verses 9 and 10 where the differing views come in. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. But again, I can't get into all the different views today. You can see that clock is warring against me. If you're interested, I'll send you some resources on it. My view as well, here's the point. Christ is conqueror. Christ is king which means that Christ and Christ alone has the authority to distribute gifts among men. Christ alone has the authority to distribute the spoils of his victory to his subject, and that's exactly what he does. Each and every child of God has been uniquely gifted by Christ for the serving and the building up of the body. If they don't use those gifts, if they don't function as they are, even if they are but a lowly pinky toe, the rest of the body will suffer. Okay? It's very important that we utilize the gift that's been given to us by the victorious Lord. To neglect such a gift is to be in disobedience, and it would be detrimental to the rest of the body. Okay? Now to close. Why is our victorious Lord's giving gifts to his children so important? Verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of 
service to the building up of the body of Christ. Do you see what that says, my brothers and sisters? The victorious Lord gave individual gifts to all who are his. He has that authority. But he also gave gifts to the body as a whole, his unified body. He gave gifts to his church. And what are those gifts? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And why did he give the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to the church? To equip the saints for the work of the service. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen to me now. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, not just a minister that you pay, the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints, the individually and uniquely gifted members of his body, to equip them for the service. It's the whole congregation's job to carry out the work of the ministry. It's, it was the job of the apostles and the prophets, and it is the job of the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints to do the work, to shepherd the rest of, to serve the rest of the body. Okay? And we'll find out exactly how next week as we dive a bit deeper into those verses along with the rest of this section. Praise the Lord for the amazing truths of his word. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, pray now as we have Noel come up and close us in musical worship. <laughs>